0: This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists, devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, Occasionally, mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Welcome to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm Brandon Pollen, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, F. Scott Field, and today we are very humbled to bring you a very special guest in the fitness and strength and conditioning realm. For today's episode we bring you brett bartholomew now for those who don't know who brett is he is a strength and conditioning coach author consultant and founder of the performance coaching and consulting company the bridge his experience includes working with collegiate teams professional teams businesses and individual clients taken together brett has coached athletes from across 23 sports at levels ranging from youth to olympians He supported Super Bowl and World Series champions, along with several professional fighters, including those competing in the UFC. He has also worked with members of the U.S. Special Forces community. His coaching and speaking has spanned the globe from China to Brazil and numerous other stops in between. His book, Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-In, on Amazon has achieved a bestseller status in the categories of sports coaching, which is ranked number one, business and money, ranked number eight, and was ranked in the Amazon's top 100 books overall. Now, he is also a member of the National Strength and Conditioning Association, where he holds both their CSCSD and RSCCD distinctions. He is a proud graduate of Kansas State University, where he obtained his Bachelor's of Science degree in Kinesiology, and Southern Illinois University Carbondale, where he obtained a Master's of Science in Education and Exercise Science with an emphasis on motor behavior, cueing, and attentional focus in human performance. Now, Brett, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk with us, and also for all the hard work that you have done throughout your career, as you truly have contributed to positive changes in your profession. And after reading your book and reading your story, it was very eye-opening to hear what you went through, but at the same time, very inspiring because of what you've done as a result of it. And today's episode is really meant to help establish a dialogue to help bridge the gap between healthcare providers, and fitness professionals as we seek to really learn from each other to help best benefit our clients. Now, I realize that I kept your bio pretty brief in the intro, but is there anything that you'd like our audience to know about you that I didn't mention in the intro?
1: No, you know, I first off, I wish you could give that intro. I, I wish my wife treated me with that amount of, hey, here, here's all the things he's done, right? Like my wife, <laughs> the door and she's like, can you quit talking? Uh, you know, because I always come in in coach mode, no, I appreciate that. That was spot on. The main thing, right? Like I just tell people, I'm a coach, and and the longer I'm in the profession, it's funny when you start off, you want all these distinctions, you want all these things, and then later on, you realize, no, you know, the word coach is is fine for most things, and that that sums up, you know, the majority of what we do. I think coaches, teachers, educators, no matter what realm you're in, if you're trying to basically transfer knowledge and and do so in a way that helps other people, that's that's a pretty classic title and and one that's timeless. So I appreciate it. It's my honor to be on the show. Thanks again for having me.
2: Awesome, Brett. For our audience in the other healthcare and fitness roles who are not aware of the specifics of the material taught in these educational programs, do you think you could briefly go into your educational experience?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, So I I had always been interested in the human body. I I go into what got me into that in my book. and, And a big piece of it is what got me into strength and conditioning in general. But Kansas State University had was relatively close to home growing up in Omaha, Nebraska. I knew I wanted to go someplace that had an excellent kind of department from from that standpoint, but also was quite a ways from home just because it was a college experience, right? So University of Nebraska is fantastic. And later on in my career, I ended up going to do uh, volunteer work as a strength and conditioning coach during the apprenticeship phase of my career. But I knew I wanted to get farther away from home, Omaha, than 45 minutes. So I went to Kansas State University, had a phenomenal experience I still think they have one of the best exercise physiology or just overall kinesiology programs in the country. I mean, there it is very rare, as I found out later in my career as an undergrad, to have the opportunity to work in cadaver labs. Um, our ex-phys course, an advanced X phys course, was taught by four different instructors, all of which whom were subject matter experts in their domain. So, you know, we had a different person give their cardiorespiratory piece, another person give the hormonal adaptations piece. And all these professors were just astonishing. I probably learned more in that from a raw physiology standpoint than I even did deep diving into my graduate domain. My graduate domain was focused more on motor learning. I was really fortunate to find an individual by the name of Dr. Jared Porter. And at the time, I was really just bored with school. And I was thinking, you know what, this is just really a filler between my graduate assistantship coaching responsibilities. I found Dr. Porter and he said, listen, you know, we have a curriculum that can go hand in hand with your coaching. Uh, specifically, it, it talks about what's called attentional focus. And that basically dives into the science of cueing and how what we say can drive various performance outcomes. So for example, if somebody's getting ready to do a broad jump, As opposed to giving them an internal focus of attention, which would be based around different anatomical positions, right? So a bend at the waist, load the ankles, knees, and hips, and then spring forward by achieving full extension of the hips. That's a mouthful for most people that are not us, right? And uh, you looked at external focus of attention-based cues, which were always going to be outcome-oriented, such as push the ground away, try to jump to the end of the hallway, focus on jumping to the wall or jump to the end of the tape, Things that just put a different metaphor or analogy piece into, you know, that subconscious, so to speak. And what we found is in most cases, whether you're looking at novice or experts, whether you're looking at simple tasks or more complex, externally focused based cues always enhanced that outcome as opposed to an internal or a control condition. Now of course there are some studies especially more recent ones and and one that I did that show that that's not always the case so I guess I should go back and bite my tongue with saying always but the vast majority of the time it would be a little bit more appropriate and the reason without going too far down that rabbit hole but I just want to complete the loop here is because of what's known as the constrained action hypothesis and basically if you give people too much information too much noise that constrains the motor system. It constrains their ability to kind of internalize and then most importantly, act or transmit that information in a way that's personal and makes sense to them, what I call talking in color in my book. So anyway, yeah, basic went undergrad Kansas State, went and did some internships, I wanted to get a lot of practical experience. And then it wasn't until later in my career when I went and got my master's degree and, and wanted to kind of forge ahead in that domain.
2: Wow, that sounds like an awesome journey. I think there's a, a lot of parallelisms, it sounds like, between between physical therapy and a lot of the stuff that you did. Um, I know that there's a distinct process for becoming a certified personal trainer and is your educational path kind of similar to that between like personal trainers and like the material that you had to go through in kinesiology? Like how does that kind of run hand in hand?
1: The short answer is no, uh, you know, personal trainers, as you know, that can be a, a fairly unregulated field. I mean, I think we, we all know examples and you can see, people that get online certifications and things like that from non-accredited sources. You know, so I'm not saying there's not good personal trainers out there, but a strength and conditioning coach is a very different kind of field. Kinesiology and, and the route that I went with exercise science at Southern Illinois University later on was really more, I would almost say, medically driven. You know, When, when I was taking some of the courses at K-State, that was a lot of what folks went into there it was pre-med, or veterinary med, you know, if they ended up, you know, p- after their first or second year, then they, you know, hyper specialize in vet med. But a lot of pre med, a lot of physical therapy, and folks go on that route. I would say I, I was the rarity. As a matter of fact, I don't know anybody else in my field that I've been able to reconnect with in, in any fashion that became a strength and conditioning coach that I graduated with. Some of them did get into athletic training, personal training, and things of that nature. But my graduate assistantship, that was completely predicated. The only reason I went to get it, to be honest with you, is after I had volunteered with the University of Nebraska football team as a strength and conditioning coach, that was something that you need to have if you want to continue to coach high-level athletes in the collegiate setting or even later on. You needed to have your master's degree. Just because the field has gotten so competitive with scarce resources, with limited job availability, the master's degree is what makes you more competitive and, and helps you stand out. So I knew going back to college was going to be my best route to kind of codify my experiences together and also give really strong experiential learning from the standpoint that when I was a graduate assistant, I I was an assistant for basketball and football, but I was basically the head strength coach for five to six other sports, eight in totality, essentially by the end of it. And so that was really the reason I went is very specific strength and conditioning experience, but could also get my master's degree at the same time.
2: Yeah, Our, I mean, my program, when I went through the master's program at ECU, there wasn't a whole lot of um, strength and conditioning training. And I know that's not the goal of a PT school, right? That's not their job, but there are some professors out there and there are some classes in some PT programs that are really doing a good job of incorporating strength, training and strength and conditioning. I know, uh, Dr. Scotty butcher up at, uh, university of Saskatchewan up there in Canada. He does an amazing job of incorporating lifting into his classes basically. And you've got to do all the exercises that, you know, he's performing or you're going to be performing, uh, for your patients. Um, it would be interesting to see, you know, a lot more schools in the U.S. chime in and and let us know if they were maybe doing some of those classes and some of the lifting and strength and conditioning stuff in their PT programs. Because, you know, again, I know they're stretched kind of thin; they run uh, a little low on time sometimes with what they can teach and what they have to teach. Uh, but it would be interesting to see more of that for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, what what you're noticing across the board is. You know, integration is—it's paramount in any domain, but it's hard to achieve. And it's not hard to achieve because you know people don't have the tacit knowledge and sometimes even the experiential knowledge. It's hard to achieve because factors related to human nature. You know, in my domain, there's a lot of times we'll support pro athletes in the off season, right? And so not only do I have to work with that athlete and whoever they're working with from a physical therapy standpoint or dietitian standpoint, but oftentimes I have to connect with their coaches and. Even their coaches at at the vast majority of NFL teams or NBA teams sometimes have communication barriers that they have to break through, uh, you know, within their organization. Because even though you might all wear the same logo, you might all kind of want the same outcome, right, the athlete performing at their best. The fact is, is everybody kind of is in it for themselves at that level of sport, meaning if the team doesn't do well, people are going to get fired. They're going to look for people to pass the buck to, and then it creates this kind of self-perpetuating Machiavellian Environment where, ah, uh, well, you know, we did our part in strength and conditioning, but man, like all we have on the athletic training side is this guy just does stem and ice all the time. There's no kind of functional rehabilitation, you know, or the ATCs and the PTs and the strength coaches might say, you know, we all did our part, but we don't feel like the sport science folks were sharing the information. So you almost kind of see this information hoarding, fear mongering, you know, self preserving behavior. That's what made my time at Athletes Performance so special. When I was first started off in my career, Athletes Performance, which is based primarily out of Phoenix, Arizona, now they're called Exos, you know, a bit of a different company now, but it was one of the primary and only companies at the time that really did this integration all under one roof in the private sector. So you had strength coaches, dietitians, physical therapists, everybody working under one roof. That was a big part of experiential learning at full scale integration for me. Because at first I was down at the Andrews Institute, and so we'd get folks that had came back from surgery from Dr. James Andrews, who's you know well known and, and legendary in, in in his side of the field, and we'd have to get these guys you know as part of their return to play protocol, you know as far along in the process as we could given their constraints, and you had to work hand in hand with with the PT and medical staff. So that was an unreal learning opportunity for me as a young strength coach at the time you know we do the movement screening we do all the other pieces the follow up care but you're working in conjunction with a bigger team which is really what it takes to to support today's athlete
2: yeah, Brett, you make a couple of good points there. Um, you kind of hit them on, on them a little bit, but what are some of the biggest problems that you encountered when working with clients that maybe have experienced physical therapy from like a clinical perspective or, you know, even that team methodology of, of treating patients?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they're stereotypes regardless of what we do, right? And clinical physical therapists oftentimes get a bad rap within the, fo- with the folks that I work with because they just feel like it's this kind of routinized, come in, warm up on the bike we'll do a few exercises with a tech, then maybe the the lead PT will see you for a bit. Okay, now here's your follow-up exercises and out the door. You know, at a high level, those things are done much differently. You're not focused around what the athlete can't do as much as what they can do. So a primary example would be oftentimes we are working with Uh, members of the United States Special Forces, they'd come in and, you know, they would have a litany of injuries, right? They could be riddled with shrapnel, it could be affecting hip range of motion, neurosignaling, uh, you know, you name the list of maladies goes on and on. And you could always tell somebody that didn't have a whole lot of experience out of a direct clinic, because let's say the hip was an issue, right? Let's say they had a right hip uh, issue, either as you know, as post surgery, or, uh, you know, just a major asymmetry, you know, you name it. And they'd come over and they'd say, hey, no lower body today. Well, now you're dealing with the psychosocial shrapnel, so to speak, of telling somebody that has dedicated their life towards achieve, achieving an outcome. And even though something's only wrong with one limb, you said no lower body You've limited them further. And so I'll never rem- I'll never forget the look on an athlete's face or uh, operator's face when they'd look and they'd say, hey, you know, my other leg's fine. And that's true. You know, the best physical therapists I had been around understood, they'd say, hey, Brett, Listen, right leg, we're still working on some things. He's not clear to go yet. However, we can do modified upper body and then they can work the left limb. And we know that that doesn't contribute to any gross asymmetries due to the nature of neuromuscular crosstalk and the research showing that, you know, actually, if you have one affected limb, training the other one can help reduce the amount of atrophy. So, you know, you can always tell folks that have kind of just been isolated to the clinic and maybe haven't seen this diverse population that sometimes they don't have a choice. Telling them just to rest or telling them to immobilize and telling them to do these things is not an option, especially when millions of dollars is on the line. Or in the case of United States servicemen or women, lives of their colleagues and those, you know, their partners are on the line. So that's the biggest difference I know, right? Like is, is you just see people that know how to work and say, hey, there's always a way around it. And we can modify and we can address all the weak links while not sacrificing the stronger points.
0: For sure. I think those are a lot of good points, Brad. And even so, too, like what you mentioned before, that big key of actually collaborating with each other and really talking with each other instead of kind of being... Uh, rather separate in the silos. I think that's a really, really good point. It seems that, at least from our perspective, that a lot more PTs are going more into the strength and conditioning aspect. And do you see the reverse happening with people in SNC and exercise science with them going into more of the rehabilitation aspect? Or is that not what you see?
1: Uh, you know, I think it depends. I think there was a lot more of that five to 10 years ago. I think that there was this big call to arms that, you know, and this was kind of with the functional training fad that hit where people, you know, what they were calling functional training was more about nuanced exercises than it was really the actual adaptational based outcome right and what i mean just so listeners have a clear idea because i don't want to speak in tongues is you know a lot of times people thought functional training was oh look you know i'm on a stability ball while doing a dumbbell bench press or here i am standing on a bosu ball while doing a single arm curl depress you know and they they would try to hype that as this is functional because now we're working not only the muscles but we're working you know, on balance, coordination, proprioception, what have you. Well, a deadlift is pretty friggin' functional, right? Like I would guarantee the rest of the money that I'll ever make in my life and my relationships that the vast majority of people around the world are going to pick something up in the next day or two, or perhaps even the next week. So when people would say, oh, you know, deadlift is dangerous, do this instead. Well, no, you have to change your lens of functional. So Anyway, at at one point in time, I think we had that. I think a lot of people were kind of really infatuated with what they thought was great performance therapy or physical therapy, and also strength and conditioning. Uh, Now, and you used the term earlier. uh, I think people have really kind of come around after the pendulum quit swinging so much to this idea of hey, you know what? It's okay to own your domain and then just refer out. Admittedly, that was a bitter pill for me to swallow at one point. Like. I've just always felt pressured that, and it's mainly from myself, right? Like I'm sure you guys can uh, speak to this. If not, you know, feel free to laugh at me. But I've always just felt like I'm somebody that has to be all things. And that's just my own, that's my own pressure, right? Like I want to be good at something because I care about it. I want to learn everything I can about it. Oh my gosh, please let me go. And then what I realize is, you know, when you try to do that, you actually do the opposite. You become pretty crappy at a lot of things, So I just really focused on getting a great network around me. There's some things I'm okay not knowing. And I refer out to close friends that are specialists in those areas.
2: Yeah absolutely own your strengths and just you know play to them and then it's actually to me I've found in my career it's more beneficial to be able to say hey I can't really help you with that aspect but I know a guy who can so let's send you over there you know
1: no question and it's, it's I feel
2: like patients appreciate that a lot more
1: yeah oh, we, for sure I mean, we just you know we live in this society where uber experts right everybody's an expert everybody's trying to get their name out there I have no problems with just saying hey guys you know I'm probably not the best go-to here or I'm not as up on the research on that as I should be you know let somebody else handle that I really try to focus on physical development strength and conditioning you know enhancing the neuromuscular system getting people stronger faster more durable and then also the behavioral aspect right as detailed in my book there became a point in time where I just noticed that we're bombarded by more physiological information every day I think Eric Schmidt the CEO of Google at the time that I had written the book, they had said that literally you know almost every day now we create as much information as we did from the time up to 2003 like it was something crazy like 2 exabytes of data we do every day or every few days like that's yes. insane and what you're running into is you know we'd see interns come in all the time and they can always tell you hey i read this and i read that and what about this but on this person's blog it said that And then when it was time for them to actually coach, like lead a group or lead somebody through a session, they were absolutely clueless. They couldn't do it. And that's because, you know, you have to understand true social intelligence as well as domain specific intelligence. But it's becoming a rare thing today. At least I feel like that. I mean, do you guys have that issue? Do you see that like more and more people coming in that have the appropriate background and schooling and all that, but just can't put two and two together in the applied sense?
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I'll, I will honestly admit over here that that was me when I first came out of school. I've been out for about two years and I feel like I knew all this material and stuff, but then I was like, Oh my God, I can't actually connect with people. Like I'm missing something totally here. And that's what screwing me up. Yeah. So I, I I agree. I mean, it's a hard road. And, you know, I've learned the hard way through a lot of failure. And then I've, you know, taken courses in education on how to get better at it. And it just seems like the other stuff is important. But I think you're making sure you get that person on board and really understanding them and their needs and communicating into the way that makes sense and aligns with their goals is really the first step. Otherwise, you can have the best treatment in the world, but it's not going to go.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, and I want to be clear because, you know, for anybody that hasn't read the book, and I'm sure there's a lot of them because, you know, I don't, <laughs> my book's not, you know, I'm, I'm not Angela Duxworth, right? Like it's not being promoted by everybody and it's all over the Wall Street Journal, but it's done fairly well in the domain, right? And the book isn't about warm, fuzzy leadership, make sure to commute with communicate with people in a way that you'd like them to talk to you. Like the book straight up just talks about some mistakes that some of the world's top professionals have made when leading and communicating and how those mistakes usually dial down to not understanding human nature, not understanding the situation, or not understanding the nuances of what the research now shows about communication. And the point of the book wasn't to rewrite that, right? Like we wanted the book to be a combination of science. So what does some of the behavioral science research say out there, both psychology, sociology, and the like, but also real applied stories, We wanted it to be readable, digestible, but also immediately applicable because, you know, I mean, now more often than not, you get a book about communication or working with people or leadership or coaching, and it's almost the same book written over and over again, right? Like I I just feel like we've been inundated with these kind of sing-songy books, and I wanted to write something a little bit more specific towards practitioners in our field.
0: Yeah, for sure. Clearly, there's a lot of research that shows the benefits of strength training for injury reduction, reducing common musculoskeletal problems and improving many other bodily aspects and of course realizing that being a conscious coach and getting your client on board with you and your plan is the first step. But besides certified strength and conditioning and what educational stuff you've gone through, what do you recommend are some good continuing education classes, podcasts or resources or whatever the case may be uh, that you feel have been the most helpful with improving one's exercise prescription and strength training clinical toolbox?
1: Yeah. I mean, books, I mean, and we could go on for days, right? It's, it's funny. I'm, I'm certainly not that old. I'm 31. Um, but when I first started off, it was, it was almost hard to find things online of, Hey, what's a great, you know, strength and conditioning reading list, or what's something I could do to learn more about movement. Now, you know, with a simple tap into Google, you can find reading lists provided by various staffs at, at, at local universities at, at the pro level, at the private sector level, so if anybody ever runs out of books, I promise you with a simple Google search, you can lock those in. Now, some of my favorites, uh, and I'll, I'm sure I'll forget some here: "Science and Practice of uh, Strength Training" by Vladimir Zatsiorsky, "Super Training" by Mel Siff and Verka Shansky. Uh, you know, you have uh, the earlier. I would say it's now every day is game day is a great one. Vern Gambetta's Athletic Development. Now, uh, a classic one, and some may disagree, but I thought there was a lot of value to it. The Path to Athletic Power uh, by uh, Boyd Eppley, And, of course, you have great cook's books, right, like Movement. That's classic. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think I can push mine up there as well from a pedagogical standpoint, right, getting people to understand coaching. But I think, you know, if you can get super training, science, and practice – you can get Practical Programming, the third edition by Mark Ripeteau. And then from there, you can really go down as far as the rabbit hole as you want, right? There's there's great books by um, Tudor Bampa called Periodization. Franz Bosch has a lot of ones on the nuances of uh, of running and sprinting. I mean, it, it goes on and on. I, I feel like right now we're not lacking for books or texts. I feel like we're lacking for true experience and more applied, right, situations. I just think that we have far more physical therapists and far more strength and conditioning coaches than we have jobs. People really have to up that part of their game and be willing to do unpaid internships, do volunteer situations. I mean, I've moved 15 times for strength and conditioning and I'm on my 10th state because I wanted to go anywhere I could. And I don't come from a trust fund family, right? Like these these weren't easy moves to make financially, but you've got to lock those things in. Uh, I'll make it easy, Brandon, if if anybody wants more book recommendations, if you just go to my Instagram, at CoachBrettB, I put tons of books that I recommend on my feed. All you have to do is scroll back to October of 2016, and I did a whole series of posts where I basically put nine or ten of my favorite books in one post, lock that in, because I actually get that question quite a bit. And then you know some of the ones that I reference in my book are great resources as well. So Hopefully that helps. Aside from that, I'm a big advocate on reaching out to strength and conditioning coaches, reaching out to people. There's a great website by my friend Derek Hansen called strengthpowerspeed.com. He is great friends with a, a world class physical therapist named Rob Panarello. And you'll see Rob's name mentioned several times in Derek Hansen's writing. But Rob is somebody that really, really understands uh, how to blend strength and conditioning with proper physical therapy and uh, is, is a no-brainer for anybody to look up if you're listening to this.
2: Well, Brett, that's actually a perfect segue into our next question. What do you think is the way to uh, bridge that gap between PTs and strength and conditioning coaches? Do, do you think it's more collaboration, more cross-networking at events? Or, you know, w- what can we do to really bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, I think it's collaboration in general. And, and I can say that firsthand because when I worked at Athletes Performance, uh, that was what really got me thinking along those lines and really gave me a holistic mindset. Like every day having to interact with the performance therapist that we had in staff and every day them having to come over. I mean, they we'd have an athlete that, you know, was just now returning to the training floor was fully cleared. They'd be doing, you know, cleans and front squats and a variety of movements. And the therapist could come over and, and kind of watch how they were doing and kind of get an idea of like, okay, how they progress in any pain, any problems. And I'd say, hey, you know what? They had a little bit of an issue with that front rack position, but it was mainly just discomfort. He wouldn't rank it as pain. And uh, we'd be able to kind of figure that out right then and there. Or the therapist would come out in the field when I'd be doing a feeder agility session. And they'd simply say, hey, what's on the docket today? And I'd provide an alternative kind of program that I had written out with exercises all the healthy guys were doing, the ones that were medically cleared in black, and then substitutions for guys that we were kind of easing back into training in red. And I lead these sessions and and the therapist would watch and kind of, you know, get feedback real time. And then they'd provide their feedback afterwards. And that was, uh, we were forced into that discussion, whether you wanted to have it or not. So I think it's just crossing that barrier, making yourself accessible. That's huge. You've got to make yourself accessible. I mean, it was no brainer for me to jump on your guys' podcast. Uh, You know, I was telling a friend earlier about the nature of, the show you guys are doing. And he said, huh, so you don't just do podcasts with strength coaches. And I said, well, no, there's plenty of people out there that need this message and understanding of, you know, holistic, being able to work together. And it's all for the good of the athlete or the client or the individual, however you want to term it. So exposure, knocking those walls down, reaching out to people, spending time, driving to local universities or clinics and just asking for 30 minutes of their time, all those things are invaluable.
0: For sure. And I think that was a really good answer and good take. And, you know, from your perspective, Brett, you know, with looking to collaborate and refer with trusted and competent providers, in your opinion, what qualities constitute a great physical therapist?
1: That's an awesome question. And it is hard because you'd like to say just overall intelligence, but I've worked with some very, very intelligent therapists that were extremely difficult folks to, you know, work with, I guess is the uneloquent way of saying it. Right. And so just somebody that's a skilled practitioner is not enough. You have to have somebody that's walked a mile in those shoes before. Hopefully somebody that's been an athlete or competed at some level. They know what it's like to have pain. They know what it's like to have to overcome or work back from an injury. They've kind of been in those shoes because injury is a terrific strain on an athlete's psychological profile. And people think it's just the physical piece. It's not. I mean, I had back surgery two years ago to correct something that I've dealt with since I was a young kid. And being able to come back from a back surgery, specifically a microdiscectomy, that gave me a tremendous amount of insight as to how I'd adapt my programming, adapt my approach for other folks that are coming through that. And so I think you have to have therapists that have walked it, that have done it. It's really hard to be honest with you. And I'm not trying to single anybody out, but like it's hard to work with therapists that just don't. Train. I don't mean don't exercise, right? Exercising is like one thing, but a therapist has to train. I could never listen to a a therapist that would say, hey, no hang cleans, no modified snatches and no safety squat or, you know, choose your exercise because he's still dealing with X, Y, or Z. Well, okay, if there's a direct issue and I can see there, right, like that the guy shouldn't be doing those things because of something with the wrist or what have you, I get it where the problem is immediate but if he's working his way back and it's just like, hey, you know, we're 6, 12, 18 weeks out now from being cleared, he's got to work into some of this. I've seen therapists, Brandon, that have just said, hey, I don't want any more of these exercises because he had this issue in the past. Well, you can't do that. These athletes,
0: yeah, I agree. in my
1: case, are, they're going back on a field or a court or choose your competitive domain where they're going to smash into things, crash into things. Or if it is a non-contact sport – they're absorbing forces. Take tennis, for example. They're absorbing forces every time they decelerate that are anywhere from four to eight times their body weight. And then they've got to change direction. You know, performance can't be pretty. And I need a therapist that understands that and has worked back through those things on their own, as well as somebody that stays up on current practices and, and research.
2: Yeah, Brett, I'm going to kind of switch things around here and turn the tables on you. But as a physical therapist, what qualities should I be looking for in, in a strength and conditioning coach?
1: Somebody that's open and not ego-driven. And if you know the strength and conditioning world, that is very hard. (laughs) Um, Strength coaches are oftentimes very hard-headed. They don't think you know anything unless you can do X, Y, or Z. Like strength coaches are an interesting breed in general. Of course, I'm not speaking for all of them, but we're a hard group sometimes. So I think you just have to have somebody that's got a willingness to learn, first and foremost. A willingness to communicate. I used to go over and I would watch our physical therapist do manual therapy, dry needling. I'd ask them questions. I would just sit there and try to talk shop with them. And they were always awesome about sharing those things. So I I think communication, I think a willingness to learn and, you know, just the ability to let go and say, Hey, you know what? I'm not going to try to program. Let's say we're talking about a shoulder injury, right? Strength coaches sometimes will just say, Oh, you know, I put some rotator cuff work in there and we're doing some stuff to enhance, you know, scapular stability and yada, yada, yada. Well, okay. And how do you know you're doing that? Well, because I chose these exercises and, you know, that's what we learned. Yeah, but there's compensatory mechanisms that really could take what you think that exercise is doing and make it do something else, right? So there were some times where it's like, that's okay. I'm going to let you guys handle more of the rehabilitation, more of those kinds of nuances, I'm going to handle everything that has to deal with kind of the gross mortar patterns, the sequencing, keeping the other parts of his body robust and strong. And then, you know, I'll integrate the things that you tell me to integrate. And that's huge. You have to be able to collaborate and let go and let somebody else be the specialist sometimes if you want to have any hope at achieving an outcome driven goal.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think you brought up a lot, of, a lot of great points, Brett, on that. And a lot of them, which I agree, you know, someone who is a really good communicator and who treats people well, who has good customer service, I think someone who is competent and someone who has really, who has a good amount of knowledge and not, of course, no one knows everything, but someone who has a good amount of knowledge on the subject matter and someone who's always willing to learn and they can put their ego aside and someone who you're able to talk with together, to me, that's something that I think that's the qualities at least I look for. And I think a good way, at least, you know, that I've heard from other people too, is actually be a client of the other person. I don't think it's always realistic, but I can see how, you know, getting into the patient's shoes and then, well, you be the patient and then go through their program could really, you're not going to get a better insight than that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and you're right. It's not always going to be realistic. But yeah, like, no question. I just think that you have to be able. It's uh, normally I'd say it's empathy, but the research is saying that empathy is not the correct word. Uh, It's, it's compassion. Empathy is I feel what you feel. Compassion is I understand what you feel. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of situations where it just takes a higher level understanding. And, you know, athlete is a relatively inclusive term I use. So whether you're working with, you know, middle-aged geriatric populations, or you're working with Dontari Poe of the Atlanta Falcons. Right. the human body is made, uh, at, we're made to be athletes. So, you know, I use that as an inclusive term, certainly not meant to scare anybody off. If there are practitioners, you know, listening that will never work with that population. That's fine. Your people are athletes. You know, some, somebody that's listening treats a CEO of, you know, some small business or a large business that is an avid cyclist that puts hundreds of miles behind them, you know, in a given time frame, and has suffered some kind of knee issue or low back issue. And it, just wants to get back to hitting the pavement. So, you know, we have to be mindful of the terminology that we use. We have to be mindful of the messages that we share. And we have to be mindful of the power, relative, relatively speaking, that we hold on to. Uh, you've got to relinquish those things to really create a great supportive environment for the athlete.
2: Awesome, Brett. Great take on that. Um we like to finish off each episode with uh, a question to each of our guests. Um, if you could change one aspect of exercise or strength and conditioning education or or any higher learning, what, what aspect would you change and how?
1: Yeah, I would uh, – you know, that's a fantastic question and it's a quick response on my end because it's needed. There is no education on strength and conditioning in terms of formal settings. I think you maybe have a small handful of universities – and maybe only two that I could name right now that have formal strength and conditioning curriculums. That's a problem because kinesiology and exercise science can give you base rudimentary knowledge of the body's physiological and biomechanical and neuromuscular systems. But there was, I had zero classes in either graduate school or undergrad that taught me anything about proper program design, exercise selection, or anything of a sort. And if it did, I mean, it was old. It was still like machine-based training. Very few, very little of it was ever any emphasis on anything ground-based or not related to a circuit. So, you know, I I thought the adaptational-based information that we got was good, right? Like what happens when, you know, humans deal with this kind of stress and that kind of stress, but exercises and proper program design and periodization and and planning and all those things, can't be omitted because those are the things that we use to derive an adaptation. They go hand in hand. So we need more of a formal curriculum taught by people that have a modicum of experience in those domains because, you know, the the texts are just outdated. Um, And I think that for some reason, I'm not sure why strength and conditioning isn't even an option, right? You have, you have all these things for pre-med, pre-PT, people can go and specialize in being ATCs, everything else. But it's like, if you want to get into human performance, you're just basically forced to submit to a general route and then go seek domain-specific knowledge after you graduated. I did two unpaid internships just so I could get on the floor and learn how athletes were really trained. And you know, so that's, that's what I would change. Of course, there's volunteer opportunities. So if anybody's listening and they are interested, please learn from my mistake. And when I was a freshman, I remember telling my advisor, and I love him to death. He meant well. He just didn't know. I, I said, hey, I want to work with athletes for a living. And at the time he just said, Hey, you can open up your own gym or there's this thing called CrossFit. And I was like, well, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think those are my routes, but, uh, you know, I appreciate it. And little did I know that later on, you know, I didn't know the school had a situation where you could volunteer to be a strength and conditioning intern and and do this and do that. Cause none of my friends were strength coaches. I didn't have any mentors that were strength coaches. Um, so if you're listening to this, you want to get interested in it, your universe or involved in it your university very likely offers those internships, whether it's with football or Olympic sports, go down there and ask. Um, but yeah, I just think more formalized education. It's actually something I'm working on right now um, with my company, The Bridge. We're, and we're focusing a little bit more on the art or the science behind the art of coaching. Uh, but we're gonna be doing some online courses related to the book, aspects of the book, how to make those pieces more applied to create better skilled communicators. Yeah, so that would kind of be my, my long answer on that. You can tell I'm, I'm not passionate about it at all. I know, right? It's just, it's a little irritating, right? It's something that a lot of coaches and I talk about, you know, as part of the reason, you listen, like people are in pain out there. People need help. And when you don't have formal education programs based upon these things that are setting students up for practical experience, it slows, you know, the entrance of, of educated and, and not only that, talented practitioners into the field. Put it this way. All the information in the world certainly isn't reducing the amount of injuries that is happening on a daily basis, either through gen, general population or athletes.
0: So, Brett, thanks so much for the insightful discussion. It was great to hear your take on all those things. It was really good to kind of hear this from different role, for that matter. Uh, where can our audience find you online and on social media?
1: Real easy. I'm most active these days on Twitter and Instagram, at Coach underscore Brett with two T's, B as in boy. So, at Coach underscore Brett with two T's two T's and then B as in boy. That's where I post a lot of everything from thoughts on training to videos and pictures of me training and what have you. Um, You can go to BartholomewStrength.com. If that's a mouthful, just go to BridgeHP as in helloandpaul.com and that is what we'll be building out soon. So social media and BridgeHP.com. If you're interested in my book or further thoughts, you can find that on Amazon by searching Conscious Coaching.
2: Thanks so much for coming on, man. We appreciate your time.
1: Pleasure is mine. Thanks so much, guys.
0: Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
2: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast,